All right, let's pray. God, we're grateful that you're a good and gracious God, that you give us one day out of seven that we get to start the week by gathering together, worshiping you and focusing on you. For we have done nothing unto ourselves. Everything that we receive is a gift from God. We either are grateful and thankful for that, or we wish that we would be God. Help us to understand you more and more as we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Oftentimes, um, we said the first rule of theology is God is God and I am not. And while that is 100% true, it's probably not the first rule of theology. The first rule of theology, I think, where you have to start with everything is in the beginning, God. Because if you don't start within the beginning, the God, then you get off base. So I think it kind of goes in the beginning, God, and then you can say God is God and I am not. And then you have to remember the covenant because Adam didn't chose to be born. Um, it's a covenant of life. And many of these things I repeat almost every time I teach because it needs to be in our bones as we read scripture. So in the beginning, God, God is God and I am not. We always have to remember the covenant. And then the last kind of slogan of the Bible that I think is worth remembering is kill the dragon, get the girl. And children, who's the dragon? Satan, that's right. The devil, Satan, is the dragon. Who is the girl? The bride of Christ, the church, the church. So those things we have to keep in mind. I oftentimes try to remind people of the five solas, sola gratia, sola grace, nothing by grace, faith, Christ, the Bible alone. And we oftentimes forget the last one, but it's important to keep in mind. So only by grace, only by faith, only through Christ, only the Bible, and the Bible probably is paramount in all that because that's where we learn about God's grace, learn about faith, learn about Christ. But grace, faith, Christ, and Bible, and the last, sola, to the glory of God alone, to the glory of God alone. And that sounds egotistical to people, um, but it's not if we realize that God gave us everything and he deserves all of our glory. It's easier for us to give praise and glory to an athlete to a movie star, but God created everything and we can do nothing on ourselves. Even try to have your next breath. If God doesn't give it to you, you don't receive your next breath. And when we talk about keeping the covenant in mind, we have to know what the covenant, what the word covenant means. And we have to know if we're in that line of faithful to the covenant. So we have to look backwards and we have to see where we are and where we're going when we're looking at the covenant. But lots of times covenant is explained as a contract between two people. I enter into a contract with Tim Norheim to shovel his driveway and uh, my shovel breaks and it doesn't snow. So I go to Tim and say, you know, I'd like to get out of the contract. And Tim says, yeah, no problem. I didn't get any snow anyway, no, no problem. We both break the contract. But can you do that with a covenant? Sometimes I provocatively um, say to uh, somebody that goes to what I call a big, happy, clappy, evangelical church that most weddings in your church are homosexual or gay weddings. 
They go, no, no, they're not. They're not at all. Well, we're not marrying Ted and Fred in our, our service. I mean, that's those other guys. And I said, oh, I know that. You're not marrying Ted and Fred, but Ted and Fred can get married in those other services because your weddings are mostly gay weddings. They're set up for that. No, 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 no. And I said, well, let me tell you what I mean. You got this sweet little boy, sweet little girl. They fall in love. They decide to get married, and they want to get married in a church. So far, so good, right? And it's their day. And they invite their friends to come, and they want God to be a part of their worship service. So God's invited in to their wedding, and they say their vows. Sometimes they write them themselves. Sometimes they take it from someplace else. But they're missing the point of what a marriage is. Who gave the definition of what marriage is? Always the same answers. God. God. That's right. God came up with marriage. He defined it. He makes the rules. And as you remember what Pastor Ralph says, he uses tennis as an, as an illustration. Tennis is more fun when you play by the rules, right? You keep the lines. You play within the lines of the game. And so marriage is something that is initiated by God. Of course, a boy and a girl, a man and a woman decide to get married. Of course, that's, that's right. And of course, it's not a homosexual or gay wedding by Ted and Fred. But we have to know that God established marriage, right? He sets the rules by it. And what does he want out of a marriage? What are the rules that go into a marriage? Did he give, did he give the, the, um, the pawns? I'm going to chess now instead of tennis. I could use almost any example, but when you play the rule of when they play the game of chess, it only makes sense if both people follow the rules. You can't just take a pawn and, and move it like you can a queen. I mean, you're not even going to play because you're just making up the rules. So with marriage, he gave duties to a husband. He gave duties to a wife. He wants godly offspring in Malachi. When the, the Jews accused God, um, put God on trial, um, he says, you're robbing me. You know, what have we done wrong? Well, you're robbing me. You're robbing me of my ties. You're robbing me of godly children. They're my holy seeds. So we have to look to the covenant of what God sets up. And I use marriage because Ephesians 5 says, but I'm not talking about marriage, really. I'm talking about Christ and the church. Well, in the beginning, God, he created Adam. That's a covenant of life. What were Adam's duties and responsibilities? This is, I know, review. I've said this several times, but you just got to get in there bone. What were Adam's duties and responsibilities when, he, when he, he was given life? What are your children's duties and responsibilities to you when they're young? It's a type and shadow, but we are to, Adam was to obey God. God gave him lots of yeses and one no. It's a good, good memory for parents. He gave him a sign and a seal. Two trees, tree of life, tree of death. It wasn't called the tree of death, but that's what it was, right? The tree of life, obey me, play by the rules, right? Tree of knowledge of good and evil, which is shorthand, eat of this if you want to be like God, right? If you want to be your own God. Every time we sin, every time we sin, we, we're taking... It's not an apple, that's just what we call it. We eat off the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. We say we want to be God every time we don't feel like obeying our mom or our dad or every time we don't want to play by the rules of chess or play by the rules of tennis or play the rules that God's given to us, right? Then we're 
um, not doing well. But as, the, as all the covenants are revealed, one covenant revealed over time to us, just like when, you're, when you have a little child, you reveal a little bit to them, and when they get older, they understand a little bit more, and they understand a little bit more. And as we grow in our faith, as we grow in our covenantal faithfulness from where we've been to where we're going, we want to make sure that we're not thinking like a, a boy or a young man, we're thinking like a man, right? Paul uses that in the epistles. And so we want to think about these things as mature men and women in, in the faith. And when I say look behind, this is like fr free. This is just something that we got to get to our bones to. It, and so this is all big, long introduction. But the best testimony in the world is I came from a faithful father. He came from a faithful father. He came from a faithful father, right? That's the good testimony we want. We want to be that so that our great, 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 great grandchildren can say, I remember this, and I'm thankful to come from that heritage, heritage of people who are thankful, grateful to God, always gave the glory to God, all decisions were made according to the Bible, we always wanted to be like Christ. So that's kind of a background. The question today, we get to catechism, large catechism, 161 to 167, and 91 to 93 in the shorter catechism, if you're making your way through those. The question is, how do the sacraments become effective means of salvation? Do you remember last week? I'll get to you in a second. Do you remember last week we talked about grace and means of grace, right? Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit, they quicken a person's life. Quicken is an old-fashioned word for they give life. They give life, but they use means. Means, right? And so last week I talked about means can be preaching the word, declaring the word. Sometimes it's through your speech. Sometimes it's through your actions. It can be reading the Bible. It can be prayer. It can be fasting. It can be feasting. Um, it can be singing psalms. All these things are means that we communicate, and God uses sinful men through those means to um, work alongside God as he quickens life. That's why you can tell your, the littlest of child, you know, who made you? Yeah, right? God made me. What else did God make? It's the simplest catechism for every little child. What else did God make? All things, right? And why did he make all things? To his glory. Good little catechisms. Before even a, a child can speak, they can do the motions of all that. So the two most common uses, I shouldn't say common, for Protestants, there's two sacraments. And sacrament is not in the Bible. The word isn't, but the two sacraments are throughout the scripture. So the two sacraments are, two sacraments are, for Protestants, yes? Baptism and communion. That's exactly right. And what is a sacrament? Now you're up. It's your shining moment. What is a sacrament?
not only are you an excellent reader, that's an A plus perfect, perfect answer. So we're gonna go through that a little bit now. Well done, well done. And how old are you? Five, five years old. Mm. Tremendous. A sacrament is a holy regulation established by Christ. So I talked last time about Roman Catholics, grace and means are the same for Protestants. They're two different, two different things. That's why last rites, and, and it's actually why they have um, more sacraments. They have uh, seven sacraments because if, if grace and the means of grace are one, you have to add. We have two, they have to be established by Christ in his church. So what does in his church mean? Ordinarily, almost always, they should be administered in a church. So that means, in a church means when everybody's invited to worship. So that means when you go to um, um, Protestant weddings and they decide to have communion, it's everybody wasn't invited. The whole church isn't invited. They really shouldn't have communion at, at, at weddings. Roman Catholics do because that's one of their sacraments as a wedding. But when somebody hasn't been to church because they're ill or, or have, have, um, they haven't been able to come to church, the elders will invite people from church to come along with them and we administer communion to them to make sure that they know that they're a part of the family even when they can't be here, but it's done through the church. And then baptisms at time, there's exceptions to the rule, but ordinarily baptisms are done um, at church and should be done at church. And then we do our baptisms at this church at the start of the service as an entrance into the service. A lot of old Protestant churches would have baptismals at the back of the church. As a symbol, it's the entrance into the church. When I grew up, I'm saying because I'm old, not how I grew up, but 100 years ago, if you were a Christian, you were buried in a church cemetery. Church cemeteries were where the Christians were buried and the public cemeteries is where people that weren't members of the church. And we say, oh, we don't wanna quite be like Rome in that, that being a member of a church is a sacrament because that's one of their sacraments, but we do need to highly esteem church membership. And that's a separate lesson that we've done in the past, but you gotta know, don't forsake the assembly of the righteous, who are your elders specifically you should be submissive to, who are your brothers and sisters that you can hold accountable and, and, and work with. But today, we're going through the sacraments and specifically the sacrament of baptism. And then we're gonna go through the sacrament of the Eucharist or communion or the sacrament of Thanksgiving uh, next Lord's Day. So it is a regulation, a rule that Christ established for his church as a sign and a seal. Sign and a seal. So it points to something and it seals it as an outward display. So that's why you have witnesses. It's good to have witnesses when you get baptized. You're good to have witnesses when you get married. Good to have witnesses. You look around so your brothers and sisters are when you're eating a meal for communion. It's a witness to those. It's an outward display to those that are within the grace, covenant of grace, right? And that's uh, when, when God created Adam, you could say it's a covenant of grace. You can say it's the covenant of life. God gave him life. God gave him grace to do it. Everything is of grace. And this is to show the benefits that we have in Christ's mediation. Because how can we ever, how can we ever escape God's wrath due to the sin and we fully deserve the wrath? What's the only way of escape? Yes. 
Yep. Only through Jesus and confessing your sins to Jesus. That's right. Jesus is the only mediator. It serves these means of grace, all of them, but specifically the sacraments, serve to strengthen and increase our faith and all the other graces that God gives. Other graces like prayer, other things that help with those means. So when, when someone is struggling with sin in some churches, well, in faithful, it's hard to say faithful, but um, in some Protestant churches, I'll pick on Scottish churches, um, they offer communion once a year because they don't think they're worthy. But try feeding your children once a year. They die. You know, we feed, we feed the good shepherd feeds the sheep. Let's, you can see that in scripture. Jesus feeds the sheep. So we have communion on a, on a weekly basis because we want our, our sheep to be fed. And this, we're talking about baptism, so I'm taking away Kyle's thunder for, for next week as, as, as he teaches it. But when we eat together family meals, I mean, even, even pagans or secular people can, can make, do these studies and say, if families eat together, they're more likely to grow up as adjusted, well-run families. When, when families are all doing their own things and hustling and busting out and they don't have family meals together, um, it doesn't go as well. But you have to know who's in the family, right? And who's in the family are those that are baptized. So when we, when we um, fence the table for communion, right, listen carefully, and what, what we say, right? Baptized and a member of either this church or another church and our Bible believing. When we say these things, it's defense the table. We want to know who our brothers and sisters are. And when you look around, you know everybody's a piece of work. You know everybody's a sinner, right? And er earlier in the service, we've confessed our sins. We do it corporately and individually, right? And, it, it, and it, we even have the call to confession where we usually say a few verses and say, Boy, these should trigger a lot, of, a lot of sins in your life that you need to confess, right? And so then we, we become clean by confessing our sins, right? Confessing our sins. And then we're free to ascend to the heavens and worship God because we've confessed our sins. And we, the pardon is because of Jesus, what Jesus did. You'll never hear somebody say it's because you confessed your sins, you're saved. You have to confess your sins, but your confession didn't save it. There's nothing that we can do, nothing that we can do to add to our salvation. We simply receive it with grateful hearts, receive it. And that is a foreshadowing or an aftershadowing of a baptism as well. So there's a number of verses that if you have the larger uh, catechism that go and explain all that. And there are two parts of the sacrament. There are two parts. One is external, a physical sign. And this was used according to Christ's own directions. The other one is an internal, spiritual grace signified. And oftentimes, I kind of hinted at this when I said when I was a, a boy, I, I thought like a boy when I became a man. I put away childish things and became, became a man and think like a man. When you're a little child, you think in black and white categories. It's, and sometimes we don't mature out of that. But it hit me like a ton of bricks when I was... I guess I was 19 years old, 18 or 19, and I went to study in Israel. <clears throat> and that section over there was the Christian section. They're divided up into quarters. And, and so that's the Christian section. That's the Muslim section. And anyway, in lots of places in the world, those are the Muslims, those are the Christians, and, and there, there's different sections. And I go, oh, these are my people. They're Christian. And I go over there and go, huh, don't see a lot of fruit here. But objectively, they're Christian. 
And we don't like to think in terms of objective and subjectivity, but not everybody, not, not all of Israel is of Israel, the Bible says, right? And we see that. We see that. So what are the two, two places in the Bible that one Paul and one Peter talk about baptism in the Old Testament, either, even though baptism wasn't in the Old Testament? But they said it was. Sorry? Um, Paul and Peter used baptism to describe an Old Testament reality. I wasn't clear. So it had to happen in the Old Testament, and Paul and Peter said that was their baptism. Yes, sir? The Red Sea. That's exactly right. Um, I think the Red Sea was Paul, and Peter was Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark. That's right. So they called it their baptism. Now, if I were reading that without them giving the commentary, right, on the Old Testament, I might not have got that. I pray for that kind of wisdom, that kind of understanding of Scripture. But let's go with Noah's Ark, because that happened before the Red Sea, right? Historical. How was that a sacrament of baptism? How was it a sign and a seal? Or what was the sign and the seal? Um, he saved Noah and his family, right? That's the, that's the ceiling, right? And when you see these cute little pictures of Noah's Ark, as Jeff Evans says, we're all the dead bodies, right? Banging into the boats. I mean, it was, it was mass, massive death, massive death. And how did Noah he, know that he was in the line of faithfulness to the covenant, right? Because he was saved, right? He was baptized, and what was, the, what was the sign that was given? Look in the sky, children. What do you see in the sky when it rains? Yes. Rainbow. That's right. And so did all of Noah's kids that were saved, that were saved, that were baptized, did all of them lead a faithful life? All right. All right. Let's go to the next example. So after many years in Egypt, Slavery, right? God frees the people from the slavery. He frees us from the slavery that we are to sin. That's what freedom means. Now we're free to obey. We're not in bondage to sin. We're free to obey. He saves them, right? And he gives them all sorts of grace. Put the blood on the doorpost. Do this, do this, do this. He even sends them out with the wealth of Egypt. Take our money and go, right? That's why we call plundering the Egyptians, right? So takes, takes the money and go. And then what happened to almost everyone that left and wandered through, wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. What does the Bible say about them? Yes. That generation died in the desert. That's exactly right. And who went into the promised land? Very, very few. And so sometimes we read the scriptures and we say, oh, the wide road and the narrow road, but that's a parable that we don't really understand. That doesn't apply to, to this um, because depends on what your eschatology is, but if you read the scriptures without having any bias, you'll see that it, as the world progresses, more and more and more people are going to come to the saving knowledge of Christ as the waters cover the sea. So um, with baptism, as thinking like a child versus a man, 
or a boy or a girl versus a woman or a man that's more mature in your faith, there is an objectivity because those people really were baptized, right? And when they walked through the Red Sea, everybody was sprayed. You know, who was immersed, by, by the way, in the Red Sea? It's a little jab at, at, at people that we, we'll do immersions at our church, we'll do sprinklings, we'll do pouring. We just want baptisms, right? Baptisms. Uh, and when we baptize people, well, I'll get back to, I'll, I'll do that, I'll do one first. Answer one question before the next. Who was immersed at that baptism in the Red Sea? All the Egyptians, yeah, all the Egyptians, that's right. All the people that weren't saved, that's just, it, but there's other examples of immersions in the Bible. So that's why we're good with all the different, all the different uses. We just want a person baptized. Um, and so um, now I've got another tangent. So when we're doing counseling as a, as a, as a pastor, as a shepherd, um, it's important to go back to a point in time, an objective category. Um, uh, your baptism, you're a Christian, or renounce your Christian faith. Say there is no God and I hate him, right? Renounce it. But if they've been baptized, we pick them up by their baptism. Say, okay, you're baptized, you're a Christian. We have no idea if their name is written in the book of life. No idea. In fact, at that particular time, you'd say, who? Probably not. But think about if we are Nathan counseling King David at a particular time, right? We might say, who? You know, are you a child of God? Were you circumcised, right? Um, you need to be faithful to this. Remember all the people who aren't faithful, what happened to them? What line are you from? You want to be through the line of faithfulness and you want to be faithful and you want to have the next generation be faithful, right? And so anytime we're talking about each other or about other people, we don't know whose names are in the local life. We call all men everywhere to confess and repent. That's exactly right. So with baptism, when you counsel, you, you, we, we try to pick them up by their baptism or hold them to their baptism. And so when somebody doesn't repent of their sin, it's called contumacy, right? And it's a fancy word for saying they're not willing to repent from their sin. And then what, if you go to a loving, caring church, what do the elders do? After they've worked with you and tried to, tried to help you through all this, what, what happens then? Then you're called excommunicated, right? Because then you don't get communion. You're good with the answers. Your hand is so quick. Then it's called excommunication. But still, you, you can't say that they're not in the, in the name isn't written in the book of life. You treat them as an unbeliever. Only the secret decrees to God are known to God. And that's who is an innie and who's an outie, right? That's a funny way of saying it so you guys will remember it. But when you're baptized, okay, let, let's, Moses, right? What happened in Deuteronomy 28 and 29? Blessings and curses, right? So when and this is something that we should probably do here, but I remember going to a church once and the pastor was doing a, an infant baptism and, and the parents are all smiley and excited about it and so were we when we baptized our kids and so are you. But the pastor says, you know, you should be in fear right now. Why should, they, why should a parent be in fear? Because they're baptizing their child, right? Blessings and curses if you're faithful or unfaithful. And, the, and, and if you're a Baptist and you're 8 or 10 or 13 to 16 or 20 to 22 and you're being, getting baptized, you should be fearful, right? You should be fearful. Actually, there's huge studies going on. Another tangent, sorry. Um, I will get to the meat of this. Huge tangents. Um, 
There's big studies going on among all faith, many faithful Baptists at what the right age to baptize their kids are. Because there's many that said, boy, three or four years old, I can see signs of repentance, right? They have an understanding, even if they're repeating the words back to me that I've repeated to them and taught them in little children's catechisms. But I've seen true repentance. You know, when they've sinned, they want to repent and make good, right relationship with us. So I'm ready to baptize them at two, three, four, you know, very, very young ages. The next category of Baptists say, well, you know, if you can't be so sure. They might fall away, right? You know, when they get to be teenagers, you've really got to wait. And so maybe at 8 to 10, they're mature enough and they understand more, then you can babysit, baptize them. And then some people say, nope, 13 to 16, that's the time period because then, you know, the Lutherans and Roman Catholics have confirmation and just, they're, they're kind of, conf they, can conf they, they, they can understand this. There's all, and, and for Baptists, they'll do um, a dry dedication and a wet baptism. And for Lutherans, they'll do what? A, a wet baptism and a dry, de a dry dedication or confirmation. But now, the consensus of a lot of these leader Baptists are you got to really wait till they're 18 to 22 because there'll be fewer people that will fall away. Right? But what's the key word there? Baptism doesn't necessarily save you. Right? It, it, it doesn't save you. But if you're baptized, blessings and curses. It's a blessing. It's a means of grace, right? When your parents baptize you. It doesn't matter if you're baptized as a week old, if you're baptized at 2 or 3, 8 to 10, 13 to 16, 18 to 22, or 82 years old. It's a means of grace. But you can still be unregenerate, right? You still can be. So when we baptize, we baptize them into the covenant. In a way, everyone who's ever been born, right, is in the covenant. We really are. I mean, every, everybody that's been born was born in water and blood. Everybody that was born didn't chose. We're all Adams. Every day, he got to choose, right? We get to choose, tree of knowledge, good and evil, or tree of life, we get to choose every second of every day. So the knock with baptizing infants is, well, you know, they might, they might forsake their baptism. They might not believe it. Yeah, yeah, and every baptism might not believe it. So what, what, do, you, what do you do, right? But when, when, when you adopt a child, as Jaden was adopted, or what, whether um, the, the child wasn't adopted, you raise them up as whites, roadies, norheims, niuses, I mean, go on and on. Believe it, right? And sometimes kids don't even look like, ah, how come I got curly hair? And how come I'm six foot tall and my mom was 5'2 and my dad was 5'7? It's like, I don't know, I'm thankful, but I'm their, I'm their child, I'm their son. And you grow up believing that and living that out. And even, even in that, there's some children that grow up to hate their parents and even change the name of their parents. And so that's not a guarantee either. So God gives us baptism, and it's his sign and seal on us, right? But just because he baptized us, whether we had a say in it or not, just like we didn't have a say when we were born, but when somebody becomes a, a Christian later in life, um, I tell them, yeah, but you were baptized as an infant. God put his seal on you, right? So, well, I better get, get, get going on here. Grace does not take away from our responsibility. That's what I wanted to communicate next. Grace does not take away from our responsibility. 
So when we're baptized, when we go through the Red Sea, when we're on Noah's Ark, we still have responsibility. What's our responsibility? To obey. To obey. That's exactly right. Play by the rules. Play in the line. Play the chess game correctly. Play it as God declares us to play. If, I, if I'm a husband, I can't abdicate those responsibilities. It's not my choice. I have to act as a husband how God wants me to act. If you're a wife, you have to act that way. And then if you're grown up into privilege, right? Not really any of us are, but just say if you're grown up as, a, as, a, as the king's son. Um, uh, king Charles is gonna be king soon, right? He's got the service and he has a son. Their son's names are Will and Harry, is that right? All right, so when they're raised up um, in privilege, right? In privilege, does that abdicate their responsibilities? No, it doesn't abdicate their responsibilities at all. They still, in fact, it, it validates. Privilege gives us our responsibilities. It gives us our responsibilities. And it doesn't matter if you're a child of the king or King David, or if you're Adam's child, whoever's child we are, we have responsibilities that God gives us to be faithful. And we're first and foremost gods, right? And parents are entrusted to teach us about God. That's why you teach your children to read, so they can read the scriptures and know more about God. The question is, how come God chooses to quicken some people's lives, to have some people be believers or Christians, and some not? But we're, it's by, by God's grace, because we're all deserving of death. It's only through Jesus that we're saved, only by God's grace that we're saved. So there's plenty of verses if you want to go through the rest of this. Who should be baptized is question 166. How do we continue to use our baptism? How, that's a good one. Let's just pause on that one. How do we continue to use our baptism? 167. How do we use our baptism? How can we improve on our baptism? That's another way of saying it. How do we improve on our baptism? All those other means of graces that we've talked about. Yes, Quinn? Yeah, and believe, yeah, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, so how do we improve our baptism? Reading the Bible, daily, praying, hospitality, hanging out with friends that believe in Jesus, right? Um, being around one coal by itself will burn out. Coals with coals, lots of coals together, the fire will stay, stay warm, right? All those things that we read about in the Bible are summarized with what Quinn said believing the promises of God. And to the Hebrew word, hearing and doing is the same word. We can't separate believing, right, without it affecting how we live. So one of the songs that, that well, the first song I learned how to play on the piano was trust and obey. Is that one word or two words? Well, it's two words, but it should be one action, right? If you trust, you're obeying. Son, don't put your hand on the burner. It'll hurt really bad. Is that law or is that grace? Yes, it, yes it's the right answer, yes. If he doesn't obey you, did he trust you? No. If he trusts you, is he gonna put his hand on his burner? No. Right, when do you get your blessing? When you obey, when do you get cursed? Ouch! 
ouch, that hurt, right? Natural consequences. And if you read the book of Hosea, we're all gomers. We're all the unfaithful, unfaithful spouse. And Pastor Ralph did a tremendous series on the book of Hosea. But one thing that one thing that God does is turns us over to our sins. You can think of Romans 1, but he also puts thorns around us, natural consequences, you could say, or difficult situations. So you can think of the story of the merciful father, right? It was when he was feeding pigs, right? And that's not what Jews did. Jews didn't hang around with pigs. It was a forbidden animal that he realized, and he remembered God. He remembered his father, Remember that even a servant in his father's house is better than where he was right now. So God, that's why we discipline our children. But we don't discipline our children because we want well-behaved children. Don't, parents, don't ever discipline your children because you want well-behaved children. Why do you discipline your children? Yes, what's the answer? Because... Well-behaved, you do want well-behaved children, but you don't discipline for well-behaved children. You discipline because you love them and you're teaching them how to play the game in the lines and to love that standard because the game is great. The game of life is wonderful if you play by the rules. And if you don't, you're gonna have difficulties. And you play, the more you play the game, you're better at it and use all the means of grace, all the means of grace, psalm singing, Coming to Sunday school, reading the Bible, hanging out with friends, learning, reading. All right, now I want to go to um, summary that uh, this is a book that I read by G.I. Williamson. And I go back to it periodically, but I want to go through um, his summary on this. God spilled my water. God promised something to Abraham. What did God promise to Abraham? We talked about the covenant of Adam, covenant of Noah, covenant of Moses. Yes, what did God promise to Abraham? He would become a great nation. He promised him, him people, right? And land, yep. He promised that Abraham would be the father of many nations. He promised that his descendants would be the savior of the world. And he promised to be a God to him and to his children. This was, in Genesis 17:7, was an everlasting covenant. That's why in the New Testament it says, if you're not of Abraham, we're of Abraham. We're, we're children of Abraham. And that means when Abraham told the Egyptians that Sarah was his wife, we don't run away from that, say, yep, that's my, thank you, that's my, um, that's my father. You know, that's why the little children think Father Abraham had many sons, had many sons, had Father Abraham. All right, this was an everlasting covenant. The New Testament does not break this off to begin something new. In fact, Galatians 3, 16 and 17, we are expressly told that nothing can ever annul the covenant God made with Abraham. In fact, we ourselves, if we truly believe in Christ, are called Abraham's children, Galatians 3.29. From this, we see that there is no change in the covenant of grace except in the form of administration. What was the form of administration in the Old Testament? Circumcision, right? What's the form now? Baptism. Why does there not need to be blood? Because Jesus sacrificed his blood on the cross. Circumcision's bloody. 
We're baptized. We need to be washed. Um, nothing can ever annul the covenant God made with Abraham. And in fact, we ourselves, if we truly believe in Christ, are called Abraham's children. From this, we can see there's no change in the covenant of grace except in the form of administration. Because Christ has now died for our sins, we no longer need, he's writing what I'm saying, uh, blood sacrifices or ceremonies. This is why baptism has replaced circumcision and the Lord's Supper has replaced, we'll get to that next week, but what's the Lord's Supper replaced? Passover. If we once grasp this great truth, if at once we grasp these truths, we will be able to understand why there is no direct commandment to baptize infants in the New Testament because the covenant continues. The reason is that there's no need to give a new command for something that God has already made clear. From the beginning, God, children were a part of the covenant. In fact, children are part of the sign and the seal of the covenant because God gives us children. And it's to our, the promise is to our children and children's children for how long? To a thousand generations. How many generations has there been since, since the time of Christ? 50. How many generations, if you're a new world person, how many generations since Adam? A lot less than a thousand. A lot less than a thousand. So a thousand generations is a thousand generations, to at least to a thousand generations. So we have plenty of time to go. Show us where God ever put children in the church. We say it is recorded in Genesis 17. To the Baptists, we therefore say, now please show us where God put children out of the church. That said, we want to be gracious and kind. Many of us were Baptists. Um, and the point is we want to baptize our children and, 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 and teach them to believe all the promises of God. As might be expected, the evidence of children were baptized in the early testament of the church, whether, whether we can find specific examples in the Bible is circumstantial. We will here give um, a mere sample of this kind of evidence, 1 Corinthians 7, 14. Paul says that the children born to marriages in which at least one parent is a Christian are called holy. So as you read Corinthians, right, um, if one parent is baptized, remember of church, the other one isn't, the children are considered holy. The word holy is translated as saints. Paul calls these infant saints. We therefore conclude that they were also baptized. Again, in Paul's epistles to Ephesians, the Ephesians letter starts by saying that he is writing to the saints at Ephesus. That baffled me. If you know about Ephesus and what was going on, how Paul, this has to do with thinking like a boy or thinking like a child and thinking like a man. And when I address to the saints of some church, I'm not declaring when I call them a saint that I know everyone in that church is gonna be in heaven someday. And the saints of Corinth, Corinth was messed up, Ephesus was messed up, and these are brand new believers struggling with sin, but Paul still calls them saints and holy. And even in that, when he is addressing the letter in Ephesians, he speaks directly to children and calls them saints as well. The most important thing, as we're wrapping up, is to understand the meaning of baptism. The catechisms, if you study them, it's a little slower and you should go through them, speak of it as a sign of our engrafting into Christ and partaking of the benefits 
of the covenant of grace. This means that just as water washes away the outward filth of a human body, making it clean, and every time you take a shower or a bath, it should remind you of your baptism, it so also becomes fitting that an invisible work of cleansing and renewal. It testifies by means of symbol, just as the gospel testifies by the means of word. And so every time we baptize a child or an adult up front, it should, it should cause you to remember your baptism. And to, even with the child, they're, they're a child, but we treat them as a brother and sister in Christ, we should be reminded of our baptism so that we can improve on it. But when you hear of somebody that's been baptized three or four times, right? You, you all know people have been baptized multiple times, right? Which, which baptism was efficacious? Well, efficacious in the fact that they're for sure in any, zero, right? But is their third baptism better than their first baptism or second? I mean, they do it because they want to show they're repentant or now they're more mature, they understand more. But it's something that they're doing versus something that God does. Baptism is something that God initiates, right? He said be baptized. Christ did it in the New Testament. It's a work that God does in us. And we are reminded that we're baptized and we're in the covenant and we need to be faithful to that covenant. And we can see what happened to people of old that weren't faithful, whether it's circumcision or, or baptisms. We can all think of people we know from churches that were baptized and they led, led unrege uh, unregenerate lives. So anyway, um, that's probably enough. It's good to study um, the sacraments. It's good to always remember that God uses means and we, have, we grew up in a time now with pictures that we can point to things, but think about um, 200 years ago when there wasn't film and you couldn't point to certain things. These are stories we have to tell, and the most important stories that you can tell your children is how God's been faithful to you through all the difficult times of life, and we need to trust and obey for there's no other way. All right, let's close in prayer. God, Sunday school never seems like it is long enough but it's just right because that's what you give to us. Help us to be thankful for our baptisms, to be thankful for communion, to be thankful for a church that preaches the word of God that doesn't run away from scripture, that every Sunday is a covenantal renewal service, that we're reminded of our covenant and that we want to be faithful to that covenant. We ask all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.